You're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello Book Talk Today family and welcome back to another episode of the Book Talk Today podcast. My name is Orn, I am your host and in today's podcast we are joined by James Ball. James is the global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism where he oversees the non-for-profit's international reporting projects. James is also the author of multiple books and today we'll be discussing elements from his most recent book, The System, Who Owns the Internet and How It Owns Us. We had a great conversation about the formation of the internet and also some of the key ideas and principles that went into its formation. We also touched upon other elements such as Web 3.0, some of the flaws within Web 3.0, but also what the future of the internet might look like, whether it is going to go to 3.0, or whether it's going to look different and how it's going to look different, how managing our data is going to be seen as well, and how it's really up to us to influence politicians to change how the internet is being used globally. It was a great conversation and one which I learned a lot from as well as from his book. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really hope you enjoy it. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast. We recently passed 1,000 subscribers on YouTube, which was an achievement of of ours uh, for the end of the year. So I'm really happy that we've achieved that. And we have some really exciting guests coming up. And we've got 53 podcasts before this one as well. So there's many that you can go back and watch as well. Without further ado, I really hope that you enjoyed this podcast. James, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And this idea of the internet, who governs the internet, is a very interesting conversation given the last 18 months when it comes to everyone spending all their time online. And I think in the last, I'd say, five, 10 years, people have been more aware of how they use the internet and who actually owns their data and all this type of stuff. So I think the concept and idea around the book and, and the ideas in it is very interesting. So before we get into some of the individual topics, I just want to discuss how you became interested in this topic and just talk about your your journey to, to writing about this topic. I, I think it came out of sort of about at the time, about 10 years of covering tech and the internet, um, often in the context of surveillance or government action. And it was this sense, actually, that most of the time when we talk about the internet or the problems of the internet, it feels like we're talking about the problems of social media or, you know, is Mark Zuckerberg a good person or a bit of a git? Um, And actually, the internet itself, this sort of amazing bit of infrastructure that, you know, we're using to communicate now that people will use to listen to, to this, that we use for our banking, that, you know, magics its way into our phones that has replaced our televisions. We don't really tend to think about that. You know, I, I sort of find a surprising number of people seem to think it's all satellites um, and everything goes via space, uh, which almost nothing does. And so, you know, who... That the idea of the cloud sounds so kind of utopian, you know, mm. oh, my data's in the cloud, my stuff's in the cloud. Um, and as someone sort of pointed out years ago, cloud is a lovely word for someone else's computer. Um, and so you've got this sort of, it's basically this web of cables tied together huge data centers that we've given all of our stuff to. And so I wanted to sort of poke the bones on that a bit and get into... Well, how do all the invisible bits of the internet work? It was also that the sort of the behind the scenes look at it, but also the formation of the internet, because I didn't really know that much about the actual formation and how it was actually formed in in relationship with the American government. And it was actually like a research project but that actually turned into the internet that we use today. So you can just talk about the history of the internet and actually how it came to be. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a bit of a wild story. There's kind of a, a bit of a urban myth that the internet was originally designed to be a nuclear command and control tool. Um, And that isn't true, but it's slightly nearer true than you might think. It's certainly nearer true than I would think. Um, And it comes down to a couple of things. It comes down to 
ARPA, which is now called DARPA, which is the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is sort of the USA's kind of out there big experimental research agency. And they were in the 1960s looking for more reliable ways to do command and control and to sort of do networking and to send things. Partly, yes, for second strike capability. Um, this was their idea of the nuclear deterrent. And not necessarily wrongly, they kind of figured the more sure that they and Russia could be that if Russia attacked first, the USA would be able to launch its nukes, the less likely Russia would be to launch its nukes. Mm. And as it stood, the way phone cables worked was you sort of connected one end to the other and then that one connection was taken up. Uh, and if that got severed, the call or the signal would end. And so what they wanted to test was this idea of breaking up transmissions into little blocks, sort of each one with a number on it. So, you know, one, two, three, four, five, all looking tiny. And then they would send. And if a route was blocked, they'd just go by another route and they could arrive in any order and they'd get put back in order at the other end. Um, this is actually how absolutely everything on the internet flows. Mm -hmm. Everything gets broken into packets and everything pretty much until the other end uh, just doesn't care at all, whether it's audio, whether it's video, whether it's text. It's just, ah, this is a packet. It's one of 20,000 packets. I'll chuck, and it wants to go that way. I'll throw it that way. Now, if you want to test a technology, you usually don't want to put it next to anything that's got a missile or a nuclear warhead anywhere near it. And so they were looking for like a low stakes place to test this technology. And universities kept asking them for more computers. Computers at this time are like, you know, the size of a room. You had to book time to work on them. A lot of them still worked by punch cards. So you couldn't even always like sit down and type at a keyboard and get a thing. You had to like set up your instructions, wait about 12 hours for you to be at the front of the queue. And if you put in a typo or something, you went right back to the back of the queue to run it again. Uh, so people really wanted more computers. And ARPA kind of said, no, what we will let you do is we'll give you funding to network your computer with one in another university. And their computer's a bit better at graphical analysis and yours is a bit better at calculus. And so you'll be able to trade time with each other and you'll get more done. Um, and the professors in charge of this weren't like into computing for its own sake. They were physics professors or maths professors. And so they kind of went, yeah, okay. Um, and it was one company in three universities all on the West Coast that sort of signed up to do this. Mm. Um, and, you know, they didn't particularly know why ARPA was funding it. This, you know, no one ever intended for this network to be a nuclear thing. It was just a way to test this networking technology. And so because this wasn't their major focus of research and their big exciting thing, they did the classic thing that you do in universities with a sort of difficult job that's got no glamour to it. They passed it to their grad students. And so this means that most of the people who like founded the internet and started it out in 1969 are still alive. And I chatted to a few of them. Um, and because they were grad students, they were sort of building this quite lightweight thing. They were sort of working together and quite sort of passive aggressively in some ways. You know, no one had mm. high enough status to really overrule each other. Um, and so when they were writing specifications, for example, someone tried to sort of set out what they'd agreed and he couldn't think of what to call it. If he called it the protocols or the rules, it looked like he was taking over. And so he called it a request for comment or an RFC. And now the new agreed protocols for the internet to this day still go out being called RFCs, for example. So there's very direct connection from this. And so, so the last bit I'll say from this very, very early era was we got to the day in 1969, these two sort of what we'd now call routers had been built and connecting up sort of two computers 200 miles away. And uh, they were trying to test out the network for the very first time. 
and they, you know, they got to typing the first sort of message. They were on the phone to each other to sort of test it as well. Um, and into that, you know, tech people being quite prosaic, they were just trying to log into the remote computer. So all they were trying to type was log in. So he hit L and asked on the phone, has the L come through? Yep. He hit O, has that come through? Yep. He hit G and the entire other computer immediately crashed and <laughs> took about an hour to reboot. Uh, and so the very, very first message sent across the internet was low, which uh, I quite like, you know, like lo and behold, it sort of ended up being accidentally a bit more dramatic than they meant. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that story. I thought it was a very interesting story. From those grad students they actually spoke about from the book, did they know they were creating something that was revolutionary when they were doing it? Nope, they really didn't. And I think they're sort of a bit bemused. I think they find it quite hard to sort of look at this quite niche little thing that joined up a few computers that then sort of became a few, you know, a dozen and then a few dozen uh, you know, they would kind of say, like, when you were working on it, if if there was someone who'd caused a bit of trouble or, you know, had, had disrupted it, you'd look up which of the universities you're at, call their supervisor and, like, go, hey, who was on the computer last night? Can you uh, tell them off, please? Um, the kind of, you know, what we would now think of as web addresses, because uh, everything you actually sort of have the something that looks a bit like a phone number as your internet address. It's your IP address, which I'd hope most people have heard of. Uh, there's the system that used to kind of go, this IP address is Stanford, this IP address is UCLA type thing, literally just used to be a text file on someone's computer. And when they added another computer to the network, someone had to go into the text file and add it onto that. So that it, the, the ARPANET, which became the internet, worked. Yeah. Um, and so someone sort of built together and hacked together a little system to make that update automatically, uh, which is still more or less in operation. It's been refined, but that's what DNS is. Um, and so these are kind of... They weren't building this with security in mind and they weren't building this with the sense that, hey, this thing that we're doing is just going to keep getting patched and have things bolted on and sort of done and is eventually going to have two and a half billion people on it. Um, and, you know, the, the analogy people used with me was sort of the Internet's like a rocket ship that kind of got built as it was taking off. Mm. And like now... They're out in the cold of space somewhere, you know, halfway to Mars. And they re recognize they could really, really do with rebuilding the rocket ship. But it's not really very possible to do it. Mm. And that was my next question is when you read about the history of it and the formation of it, you sort of think to yourself, well, like, probably a lot of the issues that we have now could have been perhaps addressed if it was more formalized at the start rather than just sort of created out of this this project if they sort of planned it a bit better. Exactly. And I think that's sort of the problem, though. No one ever goes, let's build this thing that will work for a billion people and has all the funding and all the foresight to do it yeah. in one go. You know, one of the guys I spoke to kind of said he sort of lost interest in the, the ARPANET and the networking stuff after a year or two because he was way more interested in artificial intelligence and he kind of went, I guess I was about 40 years too early. I should have stuck with networking and switched now. Um, yeah. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't seen as the most glamorous field even in computing, which was itself a much smaller field then. Mm -hmm. But some things were just they didn't think about the scale that it could grow to. Um, and because it was just a few computers and they all knew each other, security was never really built in. Um, but some of the things that have had both positive and negative effects were kind of deliberate choices. Like one of the most interesting bits of the internet is this way that every bit of traffic is treated the same and it doesn't really matter where the other person is sitting. It might do for censorship or government restrictions, but you don't expect your internet bill to be higher if you're 
doing a Zoom call with someone in Shanghai than if you're doing a Zoom call with someone two minutes down the hallway. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was revolutionary. Um, you know, everything on phone networks before then had cost more. And in a lot of places, if you wanted to add a voicemail to your phone line, that cost more. Mm-hmm. Not just for buying the device, but they would charge you more. And they, you know, every bit of traffic was treated differently. So the idea of it doesn't matter what flows on this network, computers deal with that. What the network does is get the packets across and get them to where they need to go and nothing else. That's what let the internet develop email and then the web and file transfer things. Um, It's what sort of made it so versatile was that they made it really lightweight. But that's ended up having consequences as well, you know, all sorts of ones. Um, One of the more interesting ones that kind of came a little bit later, but not much later, was that the web doesn't have anything built into it to track identity. Mm. Um, And so there's nothing in the sort of core protocols of the web that mean a website has a way to remember who you are. Now, that seems a nice, lightweight design decision. But what it meant was if you wanted to have a site you could log in on to save your preferences or to, you know, use a shop, they had to sort of find a way to add that on. And they came up with the cookie. But what that meant was instead of the data being held in the protocol in this nice shared open bit, the bigger sites got all of this data and all of this useful stuff to themselves. Mm. And so kind of by staying out of the way, they ended up making the decision that helped a few companies gain huge, huge power with identity and with data. And so it's a real case of unintended consequences. I think going back a step, I think it'd be good to address because one of the questions I did have and one I never really thought about before reading the book was actually who governs the Internet? Like who is in charge of the Internet? The sort of slightly alarming answer is no one. Um, Different bits of it are sort of nominally run by different people. Um, And so for quite a long time, the the DNS system, the sort of web address system that, that I mentioned, was ultimately actually run by the US Department of Commerce. So for for the first sort of decade or so of the internet, the Department of Defense actually was sort of nominally still in charge of it, the US Department of Defense. Um, They sort of started to think, this isn't really a defense project anymore. This doesn't have all that much to do with us. And so passed it to commerce. It was only under President Obama that after, you know, quite a lot of other countries objecting to America kind of being sort of the overlord of the internet officially, they eventually made this body ICANN independent. So it's an NGO, um, a a not-for-profit organization. And they get to run the web address system, but they only get to do it because everyone sort of agrees that they might not like every decision that ICANN makes, but they don't want to set up a rival one and split the internet. Yeah, And so everything they do has to be by consensus. So they've got to, you know, a bit like the UN, get every single major sort of country to agree to every kind of minor change. And the things they can be arguing about are to do with how do you set up security for dns so that it's harder to scam people but it can be things like who should own dot amazon is it the tech giant that we all know and love is it the government of brazil should it be an ngo representing the entire area that the amazon covers because it's only mostly in brazil should it be the indigenous people of the amazon area yeah someone's got to decide that uh, and then get a consensus on it. And so fights like that can rumble on for five years, for 10 years, and really kind of roll through. You've then got sort of various standards bodies, uh, you know, Nominet and stuff like that, that have ended up being quite contentious because governments often chip in on security standards and norms and minimum practices. And it was sort of discovered that the US was giving bad faith advice 
you know, Edward Snowden found that sometimes the US was sort of deliberately weakening these security standards a bit to help its spying efforts, um, which really, really violated the trust that people had in these being an actual good faith effort uh, and actually increased the scrutiny on them a lot. Um, And so everyone sort of agrees this kind of patchwork of non-government organisations isn't necessarily a wonderful way to run things. But anytime anyone suggests an alternative, everyone hates it. Because, um, you know, one plan would be to put it under the UN. But the sense is that that could actually help mask and cover up quite a lot of work by dictators. You know, mm. there's a lot of dictatorships in the UN and they're quite good at hijacking its processes. And so quite a few Western countries resist that. No one wants to put the US back in charge, except possibly the US, Um, (laughs) you know. And so there's sort of this stalemate where, again, people would never have set it up to be governed in the way it's governed because it's very slow and very difficult to respond to new threats and new situations. But now that it's like this, it's it's proving very difficult to change. So do, do individual countries have to sign up to this ICANN? Because when I think of, you know, countries that spy on their populations or have censorship, they obviously have jurisdiction over their own individual country. But do they have to follow a certain guideline that is set out for them? So all it really governs is where web addresses go. And it doesn't even sort of force that you have to look at them. So what it is, is it's sort of an agreement that .com is a US sort of global web address everyone is entitled to. Um, .cat is a sort of interesting problem one in that lots of people who like cats would like it to be for that so they could do pet web pages, etc. Um, but it is agreed and firmly ensconced in ICANN that it is actually for Catalonia. Uh, and only people and businesses within Catalonia can register a dot cat. Um, if you, there's if you also... like cats in Catalonia, then you're lucky then. Yeah, then you're, you've got a double win. Um, <laughs> you know, Tonga managed to catch it, cash in uh, because it's got dot two. And so URL shortness, when they were a thing, get dot two, fly dot two, uh, you know, proved quite popular addresses. So ICANN kind of governs who who gets what. Countries within their own borders could use their own tricks and their own laws to kind of go, hey, I'm going to block every single .2 domain. So no one can visit any of them, but they can't give it to someone else. Mm. Um, You know, they can actually do some slightly shady things like redirect it to a site with different information or imposters or there's lots of nefarious things that can be done. But it's essentially just an agreement of a shared of a shared address book. You know, people agree what .co.uk means, what .net means, what .org means. Doesn't go much beyond that. So, do you think that's part of the issue? Why there's governments and individual actors who are centering their population and are like I always think of North Korea I think North Korea is a fascinating example in today's world because no one particularly knows what goes on and I know there's more and more people that are coming out and speaking out against North Korea who have sort of fled North Korea but it's that idea about what do they actually what information is fed to the population and how do they sense information so do you think part of the issue is there isn't no oversight of the the security behind that I mean, the the issue is you would actually, by the time you had a body that could regulate the internet in such a way that it could regulate the information that governments allowed or denied their populations, you would probably have created the one world government of conspiracy theories. You know, who could that body possibly be accountable that was fair? Um, And so you end up sort of touching on sovereignty. Mm. What you can try and do is do the protocol is design protocols in such a way that makes censorship a bit harder and so there's another kind of protocol no one will ever heard heard of but that's how the internet works called border gateway protocol or bgp um and if if people might remember earlier this year um 
Google and about half the internet seemed to go down all at once. Mm. Um, that was when a big company that ironically usually helps keep the internet running and stop sites going down, totally screwed up its BGP things and just kind of what BGP is, is more or less. It's a little bit like transponders that aeroplanes go that kind of go, Hey, this way for France, this way for France. Yep. You're coming the right way for France. Um, and then you look for the next one. They're like, uh, boys in the water. Um, mm. but these are sort of in the air. Um, it's kind of goes, Hey, you know, this way for this way for Britain, you know, this way for YouTube, this way for, um, and so BGP literally helps tell packets, which physical cables to travel along. Um, and yeah, so fastly screwed up their BGP settings in a spectacular manner and took out about a third of the internet for about two and a half, three hours, uh, which was quite fun. But what countries can do is they can kind of tell their internet providers to change their BGP settings, sometimes for really specific things. And so at one point, Pakistan was trying to censor a particular video that it said was showing anti-Muslim content. Um, I think it actually was quite Islamophobic from memory. I can't quite remember what the video was. Um, and so this Pakistani ISP was trying to block this particular thing. And if you basically put in an entry going, hey, if you want to go to this address, go nowhere. Uh, you can sort of make it point to nowhere, and it's called black holing a site. So even instead of sending them to the wrong place, it just goes, nope, nothing there, nope. So the site's still up. You haven't yeah. actually touched it. It's just no one can, none of your customers can get there. Um, but they sort of made two mistakes. They didn't block the video. They blocked YouTube. And what usually happens is people share like their BGP updates with each other. It's like, oh, hey, there's a new route through to YouTube. This might be quicker than your route. Uh, and places go, oh, cool, I'll update that. This all happens automatically. It's not. And they forgot to tell it not to transmit outside of Pakistan. And so loads of places started hearing about this great new route to YouTube. Um, and so loads, country after country, YouTube just suddenly went down from this one attempt to block this one video and no one really meant it. Uh, but you know, unintended consequences. Um, and so what the international standards bodies could do is to try and make it harder for things like that to happen. They wouldn't be able to ban a country from doing it because that's a country's own choice and power. And you know, you can't really overrule a government. What you could do is make it, so that it's harder to use the protocols to do that kind of thing. A little bit like the improvement of encryption standards has made it a lot harder to do bulk surveillance. It doesn't mean that the tech companies or the protocol bodies have banned governments from doing it. Yeah. They've just managed to use the tech to change the technology to make it more difficult. Okay, so it's about updating the technology to make it harder to do so rather than just stopping them doing it altogether. Yeah, because otherwise you'd have to be like above the government and that gets problematic fast. Yeah, that was that one one world conspiracy. Is that what you said? One, yeah, one, one world, world government. Can, uh, I've never really heard of that conspiracy. So like, can you just touch upon that? So it's it's a little bit like a version of the Illuminati. It's the one it generally people think either Davos or the Bilderberg Group or the Rothschilds. It's uh, amazing how quickly any one world government thing ends up being hella anti-Semitic. Um, it's the <laughs> idea that basically secretly there's one government running everything. Some people either think there's a conspiracy to try and bring it in and we're on the cusp of having it or that we've had it for like the past 20 years or the past 50 years or the past 500 years dating back to the Illuminati, but that actually nation states are fake just to sort of keep people down and, you know, the elite actually all work together. Um, so, so yeah, if you actually implemented something that stopped a government being able to regulate the internet and its own borders, mm. that would have to be a higher authority than the government. And so you probably would have actually started a one world government. 
uh, which, you know, I don't think they usually see it coming in over governing internet regulation, but who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Exactly. Um, one of the things I really wanted to talk about away from this Illuminati thing was this idea <laughs> of transferring sort of the web 2.0, which is we, which is what we have sort of now with social media companies. And there's a lot of information being spread around, you know, blockchain and web 3.0 at the moment. So I wanted to just talk about what's the transfer from sort of web 2.0 to web 3.0 and will they still have some of the same issues when it comes to transparency and how it's set up to make sure that it's equal probably not the right term but you know set up in a way that allows access to information in the same way that sort of web 2.0 has yeah so i think there's there's a lot to unpick in this one yeah. um like before I get into the meat of it, I will say the people who are most excited about Web 3.0 are the ones who made a lot of money from Web 2.0. And that should make the rest of us quite sceptical when they keep saying that, no, this time it really will be democratizing. Um, I'm also a bit inherently sceptical of blockchain because no one has yet found me a solution, like a thing it's a solution for that couldn't more easily be a spreadsheet or a Google Doc. Um, like generally the idea is it helps distribute decision-making and accountability and transparency. But yet, if you actually look at a lot of blockchain investment groups or DEOs, there was a, a DAO um, that tried to buy the constitution recently and a lot of people, it didn't succeed. And then a lot of people lost all their money, even trying to get their refund. Uh, so and it was still actually run by a tiny little group and no one quite knows who was in it, even though it was supposed to be this revolutionary flat decision-making thing. Mm. So, you know, what gets advertised and what you get sent don't always resemble each other. Um, but there are conversations going on about what you do about the internet's kind of power to centralize. Um, and it's not even necessarily malign that it centralizes. Think about social networks. If you were going to force Facebook to split up into 20 different social networks and you just randomly allocate people to each of them, what's going to happen is people are going to look for the one their friends are on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so more and more people will do that and you'll quickly find that most of the new social networks are empty and everyone's gone back into one or two of them. Uh, not because anyone made them, but because they only make sense if you can join up with all the people you want. You don't want yeah. to be on 12 different ones to catch up with different people. I think some of us probably feel like we're like that already in that I've got some friends who will only be on Signal, some that will only be on WhatsApp, some on Messenger, some on iMessage. Mm. And so you've always got that sort of three second pause of oh which which thing do i message this person on um so we have some of those problems already um but the centralizing forces aren't just on social media um like it's not always intrinsic to the tech but it kind of is let's say you wanted to start up a restaurant and you live in a smallish town you don't have to make the best restaurant in the world if you make a pretty decent one where there isn't another restaurant super near, you know, and you make pretty good food, you'll probably get some customers. It might start to make some money. After five years or so, you might go, hey, actually, I could open another restaurant on the other side of town. You know, that could be cool. Hmm. Um, if you start an online business, you can immediately reach anyone in the world. And if it's a digital service, you're not posting something or doing gig drivers more people can come to it. And so you're competing with every other similar service in the world. And if you want to get funding for it, people don't want you to go, oh, I just want to get a couple of thousand users and have a nice time. You know, the equivalent of your little community restaurant. Uh, if you want venture capital money, you've got to say, I'm going to revolutionize the industry that I'm in. I'm going to have a billion users by year four and make four billion in profit. And so the the model of the internet forces people to sort of do the equivalent of, you know, like a night out, go hard or go home. You know, no one wants a middle-sized, moderately profitable business. They want you to be bust or worth billions. 
Hmm. Um, nowhere in between. And so when you look at sort of how these Web2 monopolies got created, it was partly the financial model, partly that they are able to gather the data and partly that the internet centralizes stuff intrinsically. Now, the one I think we're most able to do something about is who owns the data and how able we are to take it away. Like, should I not be able to kind of go, hey, Facebook, I want to move to Twitter. Can you sort of set it up so that all of my friends who are on Twitter, those relationships just stay? I don't have to make a new account, find people again, hope they follow me again. Why can't I take, it's called a social graph. Why can't I take that with me? Um, and so if we could make it so that things were interoperable and had to be, hmm. that would really help. And I mean, it's not that we can't do that. Think about email. You know, if you're on Gmail, you can email someone on Yahoo or me.com or any of the others, and it works just as well, totally fine. And you would think it was ridiculous if it wasn't. Why do we accept it on Facebook and Twitter as if that's the only way they could work or Instagram or any of the others? When if anyone suggested it for email, we'd go that they were nuts. And so more than necessarily needing tons of blockchain and needing tons of other stuff, actually, if we could just get back to being open and interoperable, and if we could build identity into sort of our side of the web and the protocols rather than behind the locked gates of Google and Facebook, hmm. we could get a much more collaborative open internet. Yeah, I think the the thing that the observation I've had is a lot of the people that are really pushing this Web 3.0 or, or blockchain technology are the, in the established players within Web, Web 2.0 already. So it's like people who have already made a lot of the money and power and influence are really pushing this. Like I think recently as well, uh, Mark Zuckerberg came out and they changed Facebook to Meta. And then there's a big thing about the metaverse and, and going into that space. But he's the most powerful person in that industry and he's pushing it. It's not like it's a new revolutionary thing from the ground up. Yeah, that's sort of the thing. It's like the people who are currently the ruling class are going, hey, look at this new thing that'll definitely make me less powerful and less rich. It's like, that's why I'm backing it and rebranding the whole company to do it. So, yeah, cool. And I bet you've got a bridge to sell me too. What are some of the issues that you find when it comes to the the access to data that's going to change in the future? Because I think data is one of those interesting things at the moment. You've had GDPR um, in sort of Europe. There's been a big thing in the last you know, decade or so. So where do you think access to data? Because I think a lot of individuals are more conscious about data and, and how that and how companies are using it. So how do you think that's going to change in sort of the next decade or so? I mean, I don't think anything will change on its own. I think things will only change if they are made to do so. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of this complexity in that most of us have kind of have this sense that bad things are being done with our data and we don't like it. Um, but very few of us feel empowered to do anything with it. And I think GDPR has been fairly disastrous, actually. Mm. Uh, it scared tons of small businesses and helped lots of dodgy consultants make money. But um, there's sort of, uh, there's a concept of consent fatigue. And when you go to a new website now, there are usually three different consent things that you have to close. You have to do a cookie settings one for one EU directive, a GDPR one for another, you may have to knock something else out for PECA, um, which is an email regulation thing. And so, you know, I, I write so about, annoying. yeah, I write about this for a living and I just automatically click whatever closes the damn things quickest. Yeah. You know, one of them could say you, you agree to sell yourself into slavery for the next 15 <laughs> years. And I'd have clicked it before I read a damn word. Um <laughs> Next and thing so you know, you're getting shipped off. Yeah, you know, so off to work in the content mines for Mark Zuckerberg. Um, <laughs> but like, it doesn't make us more aware of our privacy. It just makes us start start thinking of it as an annoying pop up that makes the internet harder to use. It wasn't clever regulation. No one thought about what it would actually be like for the user every day. Yeah. You no, know, they should have had something built into a browser. So you set the preferences once. 
and every site knows them. Mm. Uh, and you could override it manually for a site if you so chose. And then it wouldn't have interfered with it. But this is sort of the problem of we need rules for the internet. This is a rule. Let us introduce it. Um, you know, we've we've hit a point with our data where actually people think that things that aren't happening are happening. And so the number of people I speak to who are absolutely convinced that either Alexa or Facebook is listening to them all the time through their phone and using it to target them with adverts is honestly mind-blowing. And they really, 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 really aren't. But the point is they don't need to. They're managing to send you these creepily accurate adverts without having to listen to you. That would be a waste of processing power. Uh, from what you click on and what you look at and what you browse, they get it. And you tend to remember seeing an advert 10 minutes after you spoke to someone about something. Yeah. But you often speak to someone because you saw something on the internet. And people forget the bit where they browsed it or they saw it on Facebook in passing or they sort of, you know, did a quick Google search for something. They remember the conversation. They remember they've heard Facebook listens in on you. They're like, no, it's the only way they could have got it. Um, and so we need to try and actually understand how they collect stuff and the ability they have to trade it. You know, one of the things I think people don't realize is Facebook, for example, can see most of your browsing when you're not on Facebook because sites have a login with Facebook or a share this on Facebook yeah. button. And every time the site has that, uh, Facebook has a bit of code that goes, oh, do I know this person? Yes, I do. Oh, do I know this person? Yes, I do. And they get to add that to all their other stuff. They get to buy in stuff from other people's data and join it all up. There's all of these data brokers behind the scene. And so there's this huge kind of invisible network behind that's got much more data on you, much more joined up than most of us realize. And we sort of, we are somewhat, buying into a bargain there in that we sort of know they do that and that's why the services are all free um but the question is facebook makes billions and billions i think about 400 dollars per user last year um why does facebook get all 400 and we get nothing it's mm. our data it's our lives and so as well as trying to do some cleverer things about control and privacy you know, this is a little bit like if you found uh, oil in your back garden and Shell kind of goes, hey, so we're going to take all the oil off your hands for you. Uh, don't worry, we'll even sell it. Uh, but we're going to give you this awesome T-shirt and we'll give you another awesome T-shirt next year. <laughs> um, and you kind of went, well, should, should I not get like the automatic rights to the cash? Yeah. Oh, shush, shush. <laughs> You know, if Facebook can turn our browsing history and our preferences and our lives into profit, should they not have to share it with us? You know, this there's is, two of us in this partnership. This is the one of the benefits, though, I hear of this Web 3.0 is this redistributed wealth is that you have no third party. So any transaction happens between two individuals and no, there's no sort of third party in that so that there is a redistributed wealth model. Except there is a third party because you tend to need a platform to keep your wallet on and they will charge you a bit. And then there's the actual sort of blockchain itself and that often charges fees. And so what people don't realize is, let's say that you want to put $100 in Ethereum into a DAO to buy an artwork, you know, with a group of other people, you might pay $75 to transfer that Ethereum. Uh, that cryptocurrency. So that's a 75% transaction fee. Mm. Uh, Visa is 3%. PayPal for most users is 0%. Yeah. So instead of reducing the fees and reducing the friction, it's made them between 25 and infinity percent higher. Uh, sorry, 25 times higher to infinity times higher. Yeah. Um, that's not great. And so the promises of crypto and this distributed model and this this sort of sense of it is one thing. 
the reality of it always tends to be people by paying $20,000 for some sort of monkey avatars and hoping someone else will pay more for them later. And there's very few people working in that space who I think aren't into it because they think there's money to be made. And do you, do you think that's, that's sort of, you know, the, the people who are doing the Zuckerbergs of the world think they can make money being the platform. Um, and other people seem to think they can do it in speculation, which some people have made a lot of money, but some people made a lot of money in the tulip boot too, you know? Do you think a lot of it is just that network effect then? It's like FOMO. Because I, I feel like a lot of it's FOMO. People are like, they see a lot of people doing it and they want to get involved in it because if they don't, then they might miss the boat. Yeah, but I think it's, I, I don't even think it's a technological FOMO. I think if people just thought this could be a good service and will make my life a bit better, you know, you, you joined Facebook because your friends were on there and it looked fun. You know, it's amazing to think there was a time Facebook looked fun, but it did exist. <laughs> um People at the moment, I think, are getting involved in NFTs and Web 3.0 because they think they'll get rich. I think that's more dangerous. Um, you know, I think generally the house always wins. And when the house is trying to tell you it doesn't exist, uh, that makes me even more wary. Yes, I think that's a that's a very interesting point. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of of that in, in respect of that. So what what are some of the principles that you think that we can sort of put into place as individual actors to be more conscious of how we use the internet and and our our place on it i mean honestly actually i don't think as individual actors we can do very much i think it's like climate change we can sit and separate out our recycling and turn the heating down but it doesn't really make the big change we need and it distracts us from our duty as individual citizens. And I think as citizens, we can help tackle climate change by moving our politics. I think that's actually starting to happen. I think it's as citizens we can fix the internet um, because there's the questions of information and control, but there's also the huge economic concentration of wealth and power yeah. and the loss of it from workers. You know, it's, I sort of, in the book, I use the analogy of the Industrial Revolution. And before it, you had sort of skilled sort of weavers and garment workers in the UK working from home, sort of quite independently on a decent income. Factories came in and made textile production much, much more efficient. So, and that was overall an improvement. But for those workers, it de-skilled them. They had lower wages. They had higher injuries. Their children were working more. And the profits all went to the factory owner. Mm -hmm. Now, our solution to that wasn't to tear down the factories. It was to create trade unions and workers' rights and eventually minimum wages uh, and laws on health and safety. You know, the way that we stopped the sort of you know, in the US that the Gilded Age sort of robber barons and railway barons were stopped wasn't just antitrust. It was all of these other things. And the internet is the factories and the railways and the industrialized, the industrial revolution of our century. And we need to not use 120 year old tools to try and fix the 21st century house. What is the new social bargain we need to make the 21st century work? Is it, you know, unions may well still be part of the answer, but do we need a new sort of union? What rules protect gig workers without sort of ignoring that quite a lot of people actually like gig work and flexible work? It's making sure it pays fairly, they've got the right insurance, they've got the right treatment. You know, what governs our data, not so that no one can ever use it, but so that it's shared fairly. How do we make sure the billionaires have to pay tax and have to follow the same rules as everyone else? And so when people go break them up, use antitrust law, use that, I kind of think no, but not because they're thinking too big or being too bold. They're thinking way too small. You know, we need a huge sort of set of social changes to adapt ourselves from the internet age. And you can see why some people, a bit like some people thought it might just be easy to smash the looms, think it might just be easier to smash the servers. But actually, I think the internet could be a huge force for good. 
just as industrialization actually was it made the world a lot richer it made you know it helped us live longer it helped feed people far better mm. um the internet can be a huge force for good we just have to work constantly to make sure those benefits are distributed much more fairly than they are now sorry yeah. that was very earnest but <laughs> i i am earnest on this yeah you don't want the luddite sort of <laughs> way of way of going around it where you, they just went into the factories and sort of burn so, it all down and, and then rack it wreck it all. honestly my as my friends well know if i'm offline for more than about 20 minutes my fingers start twitching it's genuinely pathetic <laughs> i'm completely hooked oh no you need to spend some time in the forest <laughs> as long as it's got wi-fi i, I love a good forest <laughs> yeah wi-fi trees <laughs> Anyway, James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to discuss um, elements from your book, The System, Who Owns the Internet and How It Owns Us. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the, the time for coming on. Um, where's the best place that individuals can find you, whether it be website, social media? So people can find some of my work at jamesrball.com or you can find me constantly on Twitter at jamesrbuk. Perfect. I'll put all the links in the description below so people can come check you out and see all your tweets. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> Thanks. Fantastic. Man. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I really hope that you found something valuable within this podcast, whether it was learning something new about the internet or even thinking about how your relationship with the internet is and how you use it personally. I know that was some of the key learning points that I took from this conversation as well with James. So thank you to James for taking the time to come on. If you're interested in buying his book, I'll put the link in the description below. Any proceeds that come from that sale, I'll get a bit of a kickback because it's from my Amazon link. So if you do want to buy it, please do use that link because I'll receive a personal kickback. So thank you so much for that. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the channel. Uh, I really, really appreciate it if you do. We've got some amazing authors lined up uh, into 2022. This is the last one for the year. I'll do a best of episode for the end of the year, which will be coming out in about a week or so. So please do check out that as well. If you want to, then please do subscribe because uh, we've got some amazing authors coming on. Thank you so much again, and I'll see you in the next one.